Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha. Today we have a brand new Torah portion. Can you imagine? Monday? We love Mondays. People don't like Mondays. We love Mondays. Mondays means get a new Torah portion. Yeah, Pichi Parsha, new, new uh, Torah reading. Mondays are fantastic. Mondays are the best day. What we're going to do now is uh, jump into our no, new, new Torah portion. Torah portion this week is Titzaveh. And it continues the theme of last week's Torah portion, which is the construction, the, the commandment or the vision uh, for what the Mishkan, what the, what the tabernacle building should look like. This is not a description of how it's built or, um, sorry, not a description of when it was built. This is a description of the vision for what should be built. This is still God communicating with Moses on top of the mountain, top of Mount Sinai, about what, should, what this thing should look like. This is still a vision conversation. All right, so let's jump in. Uh, I'm going to share my screen. Mark, you've got your chumash. Over there, you've got your rashi. Um, we're going to, the goal here is to understand it and, of course, to explore a little bit deeper themes. All right, Torah reading for Tetzava, reading number one, Exodus chapter 27. We begin with verse number 20. All right, I'm going to read this translation here. We're going to use the one that's on your screen. So God says to Moses, and I've, there's so much that... So much behind-the-scenes stuff to share. I'll share in a moment. And you, God says to Moses, you, Moses, you here is Moses, you shall command the children of Israel, and they shall take to you pure olive oil, crushed for lighting, to kindle the lamps continually. This is referring to the menorah. Um, what, I probably should take a half a step back. Last week's Torah portion talked about the vessels of the Mishkan, the vessels, the items that, were, that, that needed to be uh, constructed to use in this tabernacle, in this home for God. This week's Torah portion, it's not about the vessels, it's about the other items, the other materials. It's about the garments, the clothing that the priests are gonna wear while serving in said sanctuary tabernacle building. So it's, the, it's all the other pieces that are needed as opposed, to, in addition to the ark and the menorah and the showbread table and the walls and the beams and the curtains, it's a lot of the other stuff is discussed in, the rest of the stuff is, is discussed in this week's Torah portion. So here we have the first thing that's mentioned is olive oil. You need, need oil. If you have a menorah, candelabra, how are you going to light it without oil? So God says to Moses, tell the people that they should bring to you pure olive oil, crushed olive oil, uh, to kindle the lamps continually. Pure olive oil means only olive, nothing else. Crushed for lighting. By the way, um, there's a whole scandal now with oil. You know about this? Olive oil? Yeah, 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 yeah. All these investigations. It turns out that even bottles that say 100%, like 100% olive oil, there's other stuff mixed in. The whole market, yeah, the whole market of olive oil is like very dodgy. I can't say the whole market, but a lot of it is, uh, yeah, it's, it's suspect. You look at it. You mean whether you can use it for Pesach or not? No, 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 no. I don't mean, I don't mean Jewishly. I mean just la label-wise, just honestly. It's not, a lot, of, a lot of the product that's labeled 100% olive oil is not actually 100% olive oil. They mix oh. in cheaper oils into it, and they sell it, because who's going to test? But they have, if you Google it, you'll find, you'll see, like, there are a lot of investigations on this, yeah. With the FDA, mm -hmm. they, they will allow you to say 100%, even though it's not right. quite. Right. But if it says no. Oh, then you can't lie on that, yeah, yeah. So in other words, what Mark is saying is if the FDA will allow you to say 100% whatever, even if it's not 100%. But if you say there's no, there's nothing, of, no, no whatever it is, there's no um, you know, artificial colors or whatever, then, then, then that has to be the case, right? But 100% is not necessarily 100%, which is why, by the way, when it comes to kosher, speaking of kosher, Ray, you mentioned kosher, when it comes to kosher, you can't trust the label. When I say label, you can't, without a kosher certifying stamp, you can't really trust the label because, you know, the famous, uh, famous line, labels are liars. I'm kidding. No one ever said that. No, I know. No one ever said that. I'm just saying. But labels could be not, not necessarily representing the truth. Ray, you wanted to say something? No, it's fine. Thanks. Okay. Okay, perfect. So I'm just saying, in general, olive oil is sometimes not 100% when it says 100%. But here, God is telling Moses, for the menorah, it's got to be 100% pure. Crushed for lighting. That means it has to be olive oil from the first pressing. Pure olive oil from the first pressing. That is like the best 
the best level of the, of the oil. All right, back inside, I'm going to share my screen. Let's do this. In the tenth of meeting, in the tenth of meeting, outside the dividing curtain that is in the front of the testimony, Aaron and his sons, let me just finish. Aaron and his sons shall set it up before the Lord from evening to morning. The, Aaron and his sons shall set it up. Set it up refers to the menorah. They should set it up from, uh, before the Lord from evening to morning. It shall be an everlasting statute for their generations, for the children of Israel. This is, you know, I'm not crazy about the translation here. It makes it sound very mysterious. It's not that mysterious. It's a commandment about lighting the menorah. Where is the menorah lit? Inside the tent of meeting. What's the tent of meeting? The building. The building with the, with the curtains on top of it. Right? The Mishkan building, the actual tabernacle building. There's the courtyard surrounded by a, by a kind of a, a curtain wall fence thing. But then inside the courtyard, there's a small, smaller building. That building is covered with uh, curtains, layers of curtains. That's the tent of meeting, a.k.a. the Ohel Moed. So he says, in that tent of meeting, outside the dividing curtain that is in the front of the testimony, in other words, outside the Holy of Holies, not inside the Holy of Holies, inside the Holy of Holies was only the Ark of the Covenant. Outside the Holy of Holies is where the menorah goes. Who should light it? Aaron and his sons, the Kohanim, the priests. They shall set it up, they shall light it, and it should last from evening to morning. The menorah was meant to burn all night long. They kindled the menorah. Um, they kindled the menorah late afternoon, and it stayed lit. It was enough oil for it to stay lit until the next morning. By the way, that's why in the story of Hanukkah, remember the whole, the whole drama with Hanukkah? The, the Jews recaptured the temple and they went to light the menorah, but they didn't have enough oil to last for eight days. It would take them eight days to get new oil. They didn't have enough oil. Because the oil, they couldn't just light it and put it out. It had to light the whole night from evening to morning. They didn't have enough to light, uh, the, to light the entire candelabra for eight days. That's when the miracle happened. And the rest, of course, is history. Mark, you wanted to say something? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, my timing is impeccable. Mm. It's like when the waitress comes by, everything will came just to a bite. Right. I think they watched it. Anyway. Or the dentist. The dentist, like, so how's it going? You're like, I wish I could speak. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I got you. You're, you're, you're all in my mouth. Yeah. I know before you talked about the flame should rise up. Right. And that we should be like that. And in fact, there's a Rashi on this right here. Um, Rashi says to light, to light a lamp continually. Mm. He would kindle the fire of the menorah until the flame would rise on its own. Uh, and there's the Shabbos, that's with a... Is that, uh, Talmud, yeah. Okay. So since the verse uses... Uh, so small. Lahalot, uh, literally, to raise up rather than lahadli, which is to kindle, it indicates that the Kohen must hold fire to the wick until the flame rises on its own. Beautiful. And I just thought you talked about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Mark, Mark is mentioning, there's a beautiful Rashi on the opening verse, verses of this week's Torah portion. It says that Aaron should light the candles continuously, but light is not light. The Hebrew is lahalot, to raise the flames, to raise the candles. What do you mean to raise? Why does it say to light? Why to raise? So there's an idea here that says that when he lights the menorah, Aaron is supposed to hold the candle, the, 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 the torch, whatever it was, whatever he was lighting it with, until the menorah flames rise on their own. In other words, don't pull it away too quickly, but hold it there long enough until the flame is strong on its own. The new flame is strong on its own. And that's a great lesson in education and in inspiration. Right? It's a great spiritual lesson as well, or a personal lesson. It's that we're to inspire the other person or be a good role model until they get it on their own and they can rise on their own. They shouldn't need us. They shouldn't constantly need us to keep on inspiring them, but we can step back and their flame will still be lit. That's the goal of education, is to create students who can think on their own, students who can you know, learn on their own, that sort of thing. Okay, Donna, you had a, yeah. Yeah. So if the temple menorah is seven candelabra, yeah. So how did the and if the Hanukkah miracle was lighting the temple menorah, how did it become eight? Great the question. They specifically so number one, it's because the the temple menorah, the miracle was that it lasted for eight days. So therefore, we commemorate it by lighting the candelabra for eight nights or eight days, eight nights, 
and thus we do one for each night. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So we have a candelabra that can hold all eight. But we're not commemorating the Temple Menorah by creating a replica, right? You're asking why not create a replica and light it for eight days? Because that's not what Hanukkah is. Hanukkah is not making a replica of the Temple Menorah and lighting it for eight days. It's using another candelabra that specifically is not a replica. We don't want to make replicas of the temple stuff. That's not, we're not in the business of you know, creating um, you know, at-home use items of, that looked exactly like the original. That's not, that's, not, uh, that's, not, that's not a thing. But inspired by the temple's menorah of seven branches, we create a menorah, our Hanukkah menorah that has eight plus one, for symmetry, nine actually, with the, long, the center one is a longer one at the shamash to create it, to light it for the eight days. So, but, so just to be clear on the answer. Your question is why not mirror the Temple Menorah? The answer is they, they didn't want to mirror it. They didn't want to replicate it, um, number one. And number two, it's an eight-day holiday, so we have eight, eight candles, plus one. Plus one for the but center. Knesset, in front of their building, has a huge, you know, menorah, uh, seven, you know, the Temple Menorah. Right, kind of right. Yeah. I don't know why they chose that symbolism. Right, they're, they're replicating not the Hanukkah menorah, but the original OG temple menorah. So the menorah burned for seven days, not for eight days. You're saying because the miracle was for seven days. Well, the menorah only had seven branches. One second, to be clear here. In the temple, they didn't light one every night. They lit all seven every night. Okay. They lit all seven. The temple menorah, it's, it's, very, um, it's very important to remember, the Temple Menorah is not at all the Hanukkah Menorah. Totally different ballgame. The Temple Menorah, they lit all seven every night. The center one didn't go tall. The center one wasn't a shamish. It didn't go taller. It was equal. It was equal. There were seven. It was a seven-branched candelabra. That was the mitzvah. Hanukkah is different. Hanukkah is, we're not lighting a, a Temple Menorah. We're lighting our own candles. And we differentiate each night by adding one more to each night. One, and then two, and three. Was the temple menorah always lit? Was it always lit, or? Ah, now you're asking a good question. On the one hand, the verse says, from evening to morning. On the other hand, it says, continuously. So there's a lot of conversation in the Talmud and commentaries about that. Was it always, or only evening till morning? How does that work? So one answer is that most of them went out in the morning, but there was one that remained lit until it was time to light it again the next evening. Right? One miraculously, even though filled with the same amount of oil, but one stayed lit until it was time to light it again. And they had to put it out. They had to put it out and then clean it out and then refill it to light it again, the, sec the, the thing. So that, in that way, it stayed, for, it stayed you know, continuously. That's called the Ner Hamaravi, the Western lamp. The Western lamp was the one that was lit that, that's, that remained miraculously lit um, almost basically 24 hours had to be put out and then relit. Like the showbread, right? It was continuous. Correct. That's exactly Correct. what the note says. Listen, I'm not steering. Yeah. Mark is like, that's exactly what the note says. I could write that thing. Yeah. Kidding. No, it's, yeah, it's from, uh, from the yeah, from the Talmud, right. The Tracti Tamid says that basically the Western lamp, and by, which is the Western lamp? Oh, another, contra, another source of... Uh, of, of, of dispute, what the western lamp is. Is it the one at the west, far western end? Is it, the, is it the middle one? It's complicated what the western one means. There's always a debate. But whatever one that western lamp was, it remained, that one remained lit basically almost pretty much 24-7. Um, somebody said something else interesting. Oh, I said in the chat. Sarah says, but we can make a, mikdash, a model mikdash. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. Yeah, we can make a model, but yeah, we can make a model mikdash, a model temple. That's not a problem. The, the thing is, we don't want to in any way give off the impression that we're replicating kind of like on a service level, like creating a full-scale model and then lighting it would be, mm, like, why, why are we doing that? A model, I'm sure, if it's, certainly if it's educational or inspirational, that's not a problem. But if it's like, you know, let's bring this back, there's a look. I'm I'm not weighing in on the controversy, but there is a lot. There's a question. There's a there's an institute in Israel right now called the Temple Institute, and their mission is to create replicas of the Holy Temple items. Their um, I don't know if it's their stated mission, but between the lines, mission is that whenever things are ready, Mashiach, like they're ready to go. We have the stuff already built. 
Some say that's a little uh, cart before the horse type thing, and whatever. I'm not going to weigh in on this, and some say it's like a little bit, you know, non-reverential to start making these things now and whatever and replicating them. Again, I'm just highlighting it that it's at least a question. It's not obvious that it's not a problem to make it. Some, some question that. I'm, I'm not uh, taking a stance. Um, yeah. When a friend of mine was in Israel, you know Jonathan Alexander? Yeah, he got the, yeah. the incense yeah, thing. He got the incense, yeah. and somebody told him, you're not supposed to use that. Correct. Yeah. Right, so Mark is saying he's a friend who went to Israel, and he bought like uh, a pack of the 11 herbs and spices. A whole kit. Yeah. A whole kit yeah. uh, for the incense. Yeah. Right, so we're not... Okay, well, there's a few issues. Anyway, not that we would necessarily even know how to do it today. The Talmud says even back then there was one family. They had that family secret. They knew how to make the, the incense with the right blend of, of, of herbs and spices. I know I keep saying herbs and spices, that, you know, a little KFC action reference. But like they had, they had that one formula that, and it says that, and, and they would charge the temple a lot of money to prepare it on, for the temple. In fact, they had the monopoly on it, so they kind of squeezed the temple. And so the Talmud says the story. The Talmud says one day the temple, the temple, you know, leadership said, "Forget about it. We're not. This is this is uh, what is this? This is um, extortion. Forget it. We're not paying this anymore." And they said, "We'll make it ourselves." And they made it, but the smoke didn't rise when they burnt it. It didn't rise perfectly in one straight column. It was dissipating. You know what they did the next day? <laughs> Picked up the phone they, before phones. Okay. All right, you're back on. And they paid. They, they, they paid whatever they had to pay because this one family knew how to do it. What I'm saying is even if somebody buys those things and you know, does something with them, it's probably not actually replicating the way it was done then. But again, for reference purposes, maybe it's not the most respectful thing to try to like replicate it and create. Like, Would it be okay to create a cologne de ketoret, de incense. I, it would probably be a little bit, you know, irreverent to use it for like private, non, non-temple use. We don't have. It would. Mark is like, we got a business idea here. <laughs> someone, someone, jump on this. All right. From the ancient formula of the incense comes this new, uh, and it comes in a perfume, in a uh, cologne, in a deodorant, in a in a in a shampoo and body. Body wash, a three-in-one. Okay, back to our story. So we read about the oil for the menorah. Not only do you need a candelabra like we read about last week, you need the oil. The oil's got to go in. Okay, all right, now we're, now we're on to something. Let's continue, and let's continue reading what else is needed. Um, this is now going to be discussing the appointment of the actual priests, the people who need to serve in this tabernacle. Exodus chapter 28, verse number 1. Still in reading number 1, by the way. Still in first reading. And you, Moses, bring near to yourself your brother Aaron. And his sons with him, your nephews, from among the children of Israel to serve me as Kohanim. So this is where, I think this is the first time, we have the official appointment of the priests. Who are the priests? Your brother Aaron and his sons. Okay, Aaron and the sons are the, are the Kohanim. Moses, Aaron, have Moses had children. How did he feel about He probably didn't feel great, but he wasn't a Kohen. Well, I don't know if he didn't feel great. I mean, that's me, like, randomly associating feelings with him. I don't know, maybe he was humble, and whatever God said is what God said. You know, that's it. So anyway, so God says to Moses, bring Aaron and his sons, and they're going to be the Kohanim, they're going to be the priests. And who are they? Aaron, the father, Nadab and Abihu, Elazar, and Itamar, Aaron's sons. So Aaron had four sons, so it's Aaron, and these four sons were the Kohanim. Five Kohanim to get this party started. Now you shall make holy garments for your brother Aaron for honor and glory. So while serving in the temple, or in the Mishkan, the portable temple, while serving in the holy sanctuary, the priests had to wear special holy garments. There were special garments for all priests, all Kohanim had a special set of four garments, and the high priest had a special set of eight garments. Let's continue. God says to Moses, You shall speak to all the wise hearted 
whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, and they shall make Aaron's garments to sanctify him so that he will serve, so that he serve me as a Kohen. So what we have here is a commandment, a, uh, a charge that this be done by people who are wise-hearted. It's interesting because it doesn't say the best what would we call, uh, garment makers, weavers. I guess weavers. Weavers? You weave when you make garments? Is that called weaving or something else? No, no not weaving. Make cloth, weave it, not all cloth. Some cloth is knitted. Knitted, woven, yeah, whatever. All right. What I, I, so, however they make it, but it's not only the people that are, you know, that have the spirit of wisdom that know how to make clothing, but it's wise-hearted. There's wisdom and there's also emotion. There's a double phrase, so beautiful in the Hebrew. It's called chachmei lev. Chachmei means wise, lev of heart, wise-hearted, and it seems like uh, you know, choose one. Is it highly emotional people or highly intelligent people? We need a little bit of both. To make these garments, you need people who are wise and also emotionally connected. Such a beautiful idea that when building space for God, when creating something beautiful in, in the service of Hashem, it's not just an intellectual experience, it's not just an emotional experience, it's a kind of a hybrid, intellect and emotion together. That's really what a well-rounded human being looks like. Chachma and lev, chachme lev, wise and emotional, in a good way. Um, okay, let's continue verse number four. And these are the garments. So what garments? Okay, here we go. These are the garments that they shall make. A choshen. Oh, oh, this is for the high priest. Eight garments for the high priest. A choshen. Right, we know what a choshen is, right? A choshen is the breastplate that had the gems, the, jewel, the, the gemstones on it. The aphod. The aphod is a, what is the aphod? We'll look that up in a second. A robe. Okay, we have the aphod. Aphod, I believe, is a, um, all right, we're, we're going to still, we'll still look up. A robe. It looks like an apron. I know, it's, it's the apron that goes under the breastplate, right? It's like that half, let's get a picture of it right over here. Yeah, here we go. It's the, what do you call it, an apron? apron? Yeah, it's like an apron. It's not a robe or a tunic, which is like a more full body thing. This is a, um, it just goes around the chest area. You know, let's actually stop sharing for a second and show this image. There's your classic aphod. It's got some shoulder straps and it's like, uh, it's worn around the chest area. Above it would go the chosh and the breastplate. Okay, so that's your standard issue aphod. It's interesting, Rashi says here, I've not heard, nor have I found a brysa, an explanation of its design. In a brysa explanation. I, have, I haven't seen an explanation. But my heart tells me, he says, my heart tells me, Rashi, my heart. It's not about wise-hearted. Yeah, that it is belted around his back. All right. Oh, here. He says, um, like an apron, which is called porcient in Old French, with which noble women gird themselves when they ride the horses. Okay. So it's like an apron, which noble women gird themselves when they ride the horses. I don't know. Does that, anyone have an image of that? I mean, not an actual image, but like a, uh, a mental image of that, maybe. Okay, let's go back inside. Um, let's see what else. So we have here, Choshen, the breastplate, the aphod, which is that thing underneath it. A robe, which is a robe, a tunic of checker work, that's more like a shirt type thing. A, actually a tunic, well, I don't know. Tunic was also a... Um, Aphod meal ketonet. Ketonet was also like a longer, yeah, also a little bit longer. Not fully like a robe, but also a little bit longer. Okay, a cap, I'll show you a picture in a second. A cap, that's a hat, and a sash, a belt. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, six things. We're still missing a few. 
but we, uh, we're going to fill them in. They shall make holy garments for your brother Aaron and for his sons to serve me as Kohanim. So these are the holy garments for Aaron, for the high priest, and they're also going to make garments for the sons, for the regular Kohanim, but again, not going to be eight garments, only four. Before we continue, let me show you another picture that I have from this Chumash. So this is the tunic with box-like knit. Coming soon to a department store near you. Look at that. Look at that. And then you wonder why Jews were in the Shmata business, you know, <laughs> making, uh, making clothes. The garment district, etc. Uh, Where do you have? Where, which? On, on page 381. Oh, they're together? Yeah. Oh, they're layered. Oh, beautiful. Oh, look at this. The Choshen placed on the... Oh, the A-foot went, oh, went lower. Not around the chest. Interesting. Okay. Well, there you have it. Now we know. Look at that. Boom. There you have your breastplate in the middle. Then you have the shoulder straps. And then you have the aphode, which looks like it's now covering the lower part, the lower half of the body. It's around the waist. All right. Who would have thought? It's not an apron. Well, it's a lower, it's a lower apron. Yeah. A lapron. Whatever that means. Okay. Good. All right. We're piecing this together. Huh? Also would sell, yeah. <laughs> you know, things could splash. Um, okay. Good. Make sense? So far, so good? I'm interested to see. You know what? Give me a second. Let me grab the Gutnik and let's see if they have, they have other pictures because it's always good to see more than, one, more than one option here with the pictures. Okay, let's see more illustrations. Gotta love the illustrations when they show up in the Chumash. It's always a lot of fun. All right, here we go. Here is the apron. Oh, very similar. Very similar. Here's the aphode. Oh, they call it here the apron. All right, so here we go. Boom. Very similar. So it's covering, remember, it's covering the lower half of the body as we discovered. Now next door to this, the next page, we have the breastplate. This is the plate that goes in the middle of the chest of the high priest that's attached to those two shoulder straps that then hangs down. And here is very similar, very similar images. And here is the whole thing, the whole kit put together. You got your classic um, uh, apron there at the bottom, the shoulder straps connected to the breastplate in the middle. And that is the way it goes coming soon to a fashion runway near you. Biblical fashion line, I'm telling you, it's 2022, anything could sell. But we don't do this because it would be a little bit disrespectful and, and irreverent, so we're not going to do it. Um, well, the stones glowed somewhere. The stones glowed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. legit, yeah. When the, 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 the stones were very cool. When the high priest would have a question, like a big question, not like, okay, what are we doing for dinner? But like a, no, I mean like a really like high level question. So he would, he would conjure up like a, like a communication with God, ask God the question, present it, if you will, to the, to the Almighty God, and the stones would glow in sequence to provide the answers. Because on every stone was also engraved the names of one of the tribes, 12 stones, 12 tribes. So engraved on each stone were the letters of that tribe's names. And it's kind of like, remember when we had a text back in the day, flip phones, when you had a text, you had to hit each letter, each number like three times? Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. oh, um, are, like, are we meeting today at noon? Boom, boom. Like you hit, you hit the buttons like a thousand times to get, like, to get the message knocked out. So it was kind of like that where it, the stones would flash, not necessarily like multiple times each stone, but it would flash and the Kohen, the high priest would have to figure out Okay, if it hit like this stone, that stone, that stone, what word is combined of those letters oh, and, and decipher it? It's a touchstone. I mean, like, yeah. It's like, call 1-800-Chabad. C-H-A-B-A-D. 1-800-Chabad-1, or whatever it is, right? Like, that you would, if, it's, it's reverse engineering. Imagine if you got the number and you had to figure out which letter phrase it was associated with. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think, I think, to me, it makes sense. Okay. So that was the high priest. We think it was an easy job, just going around rocking that, rocking the stuff. It must have been a heavy, bit of a heavy uh, 
situation. A bit bulky. Yeah, I don't think the high priest was like, you know, you know, midday jogs around the temple. He's like just, you know, just... That's where oil came from. Rock, yeah, rocking it out. I mean, he's like, it's, it's, it's a, bit, a, a bit bulky, a bit awkward. Okay, um, so let's now discuss the fabrics. What are the fabrics made out of? Well, we got a lot of the same materials that were used with those curtains last week are going to be used with, uh, with, with him. Here we go. They shall take... I think, I don't remember exactly which fabric, but it sounds a little familiar. They shall take the gold, the blue, the purple and crimson wool, and the linen. Once again, mixing together wool and linen. We had this last week with the curtains. Same thing this week with uh, the, 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 the garments of the priests, or the high priest. It's a mixture of, of uh, shatnas, that forbidden wool-linen mixture. The same God that says, don't do it for private use, says for temple use, do it. It becomes an obligation to do it. So gold, blue, purple, and crimson wool. Gold wool is very cool. They actually wove together like strands of gold inside this fabric. And they shall make the aphod. That's that, um, uh, what do we call it? The apron, the lower apron type thing. They shall make it of gold, blue, and pur purple, and crimson wool. And twisted fine linen, the work of a master weaver. There you go. It shall have two connected shoulder straps at both its ends, which we talked about, and it shall be entirely connected. And its decorative band, which is above it, shall be of the same work, emanating from it gold, blue, purple, and crimson wool, and twisted fine linen. And you shall take two shoham stones, two shoham stones, and engrave upon them the names of the sons of Israel. There were two stones at the two shoulder points. I'm going to show this to you over here in this picture. And these two stones had all the names also engraved, all the, all the tribal names engraved. The two stones are right over here on, on these shoulder straps. You see the shoulder straps at the top? You see like there's like little stone things at the end of it or little rectangles or squares? That would be the stones that were made at the end of those shoulder straps. So this is in addition to the breastplate which had the 12 stones. These are the shoulder straps from the A-foot, from that lower uh, apron thing. There were two stones that sat kind of right over here that had the names of the tribes on them as well. And what stones were they? What, what actual material were they? Donna, what were they? Were they like the onyx or the, yeah? Do you remember? Sardonyx. 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 But that's, oh. what color is that? It's black, black. Okay. a little white, and so it's a form of onyx, a specialized. Got form. it. Yeah, right. I remembered it was something black, onyx-like. Um, yeah. Very cool. Very dramatic fashion statement. Imagine you got that blue, purple, crimson, gold like flare, and you have like black stones, like shiny black stones. Very cool. I'm I'm gonna say like I'm 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 loving that look right now. So far, we're not done with the look. I'm loving the look so far. Um, okay. Let's jump back inside. Let's jump back inside. Um, yeah, the Torah uh, um, elaborates on this. Six of their names, that's the tribe's names, on one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the second stone, according to their births. So you go by birth order, and you just, boom, you put the first six on one side, on one stone, the other six on the other stone. I'm assuming it's right to left. Those are for the shoulders. Shoulder straps. No, so the, on, the, on the breastplate itself, yeah, individual. individual. But on the shoham stones, on the, um, on the shoulders, right. it's six and six. Exactly. Let's continue verse 11. Similar to the work of an engraver of gems, similar to the engravings of a seal, you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall make them enclosed in gold settings. It gets even better, gold settings. I love this look. I love the look, right? Again, just to go through this. The, the fabric, the material, is gold, blue, purple, crimson, and twisted fine linen. Linen is like, like a white material. So imagine all these colors together, beautifully uh, um, woven together. And then you have the shoulder straps, which are presumably the same, the same material, extensions from, from the actual apron thing itself. And at the end, you have... These black stones, maybe like cloudy or whatever black stones, surrounded with or, or set in gold. It's gorgeous. Um, okay, next, verse 12. And you shall put the two stones 
right, the two stones that we just mentioned, upon the shoulder straps of the ephod as stones of remembrance. That, that line right here tells you why they're there. Because until now we know that, yeah, you have two stones, one on each shoulder strap, and it's the names of the, Jew, of the tribes are engraved, blah, blah, blah. We know all that. But now he says, why? Because they're acting as stones of remembrance. Avnei zikaron, like, uh, um, like um, Yizkar, right? Zichira, zikaron, stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall carry their names before the Lord upon his two shoulders as a remembrance. Here we have the word remembrance, zikaron, twice in this verse, twice. The stones are acting as remembrance. What does that mean? There's two ideas here that I want to share with you. Two ideas. Number one, wherever the high priest goes, he knows he carries the responsibility. He carries a, he remembers who he represents. The Kohen Gadol, the high priest, is at the top of his field. He's the most spiritual individual of the community. He's like the guru. He's the head honcho. He's, you know, he's the dude. But he should never forget why he's there. He carries the names of the tribes. He carries the names of the people, the tribes, on his shoulders, wherever he goes, to never get carried away. Oftentimes, people in leadership, especially in spiritual leadership, I don't know especially, even including whatever, in spiritual leadership, could forget why they're there and think, oh, I'm there for myself, or I've climbed the mountain of spirituality, and look, I've attained the ultimate post of Jewish spirituality. I am the high priest. Hear me roar, or whatever, right? I am the high priest. Ta-da! I'm amazing. Actually, you're here for a reason. You're representing the people. Don't forget that. On your shoulders. Carry them with you. Wherever you go, it's about them. It's not about you. So that's number one. Avni Zikaron, Stones of Remembrance. The other form of remembrance is that we need to remember that our names are on the high priest walking into those holy spaces. So let's be a little, uh, let's, let's make sure that we deserve to be carried by the high priest in the Holy of Holies, right? The high priest is going to walk in once a year, right? Uh, only in Yom Kippur, but he's going to walk in in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And whose name is he carrying? Mine. Oi, all right. If that doesn't do the Jewish guilt trip, I don't know what will. All right, so make sure that you're worthy of being represented in that holy space. Yeah. I was reading, so you might have maybe just avoided the focus. Anyway, um, did you ever say Zikron has, was, a, was a remembrance for God? No. Okay, Mark has something else. Yeah, that's, Go. That's what Rashi said. Yeah. Oh, Rashi. Oh, Rashi also is good. Okay. <laughs> I gave you two other insights. So let's, uh, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll read this inside. Might be a good Rashi. Um, let's take a look. We'll, we're going to toggle Rashi on this last verse of this reading. Avni Zikaron. Oh, look at this. So that the Holy One, blessed be He, will see their, will see the, sorry, the progenitors of the tribes written before Him, and He will remember their righteousness. In other words, He's going to see the names of Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Yisachar, Zavulan, Dan, Naphtali, God, Asher, Yosef, Binyamin. He'll see the names of the progenitors of the, you know, the initial names of the 12 tribes, of the ones who spawned the tribes, and he'll remember favorably. So it's a good zechira. It's not just about the people, it's about, it's about the, 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 the giants who founded the 12 tribes. Ray. Um, you have to excuse me, but I'm being picked up for an appointment, okay? All right, well, thank you. It's great to see you, Ray. To only good health, and we'll, uh, we'll catch you soon. Thank you. All right. Okay, so this is the Avni Zikaron, another, another meaning of Avni Zikaron. Um, now that I've Rashi toggled, ooh, we have a lot of long Rashis here. Let me just quickly, quickly, quickly see what we can find here. First of all, regarding the olive oil, pure, Rashi says, without sediment. Don't give, the co don't give Aaron, who's lighting the menorah, don't give him sedimenty oil. It's not what he wants, right? It's got to be ripe, and, um, and, and pure. He must crush the olives in a mortar, but not grind them in a mill so that they will not contain sediment. Interesting. 
Interesting, interesting, interesting. After he has extracted the first drop of oil, he places them in a mill and grinds them. The resulting second oil is unfit for the menorah, but is fit for meal offerings. So interesting. There's different pressings. There's the first pressing, the second pressing. You know, the more you squeeze, the more oil you get out, but also the more other stuff comes out as well, the more you crush an olive. Um, that olive wanted to be used in the temple, and then it got rejected because there was too much sediment. Man, that olive was crushed. See, that's a joke that we can come up with on the spot that I think works. I don't know if anyone got that. It's okay. a little similar, Rabbi, to the concept of the gold and the menorah being hammered instead yeah. of like sword or connected because right. the mortar by hand instead of a machine. Right. I like that. Yeah, it's almost like hand squeezed or whatever. Like squeezed the first drops, that's going to be good for the menorah. Anything that requires a little bit more machinery, that could be used for the, the other, like the... The meal offerings that were brought, like uh, flour and oil, whatever, that's oil for that stuff. But for the menorah, only, and the truth is, the menorah, I, I guess I'm, I'm understanding what you're saying. The menorah itself was hammered out of one piece of gold. The oil also had to be that high-level pure, pure oil. Good. I like that. I like that insight. Um, hammered. Hammered, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Rise by itself, we did. Um... Can I ask a question? Yeah, for sure. Um, the, the, the two stones, the stones that are on each yeah. side of the eight, uh, you said they have the names of the tribes. So it'd be six on one side and six on the other. Exactly. And yeah. just the, the first letter of each name because it's awful small stones. The full name. The full the name. Full name? The full names. Yeah. Yeah. The stones had to be there with the full name. Um, yeah, it's Rashi. I saw that there were 25 letters on each stone. Oh, so Mark saw somewhere that says there were 25 letters on each stone. And in fact, the spelling Benjamin had to be a certain way. Oh, so they had. Okay, okay, so they had, spell, they had to spell Benjamin, Benjamin, a certain way to make sure it was only 25 letters. This is coming from. Oh, here we go. Rashi. Rashi says it right here. Uh, verse 10. So, good question, and let's, look, let's read this inside with Rashi. Six on one stone, six on the other. So Rashi said, according to their births, according to the order in which they were born, I mentioned that before, birth order, and that is, i.e. Ruvain, <coughs> Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Dan, Naphtali, on one stone, and on the second stone, God, Asher, Yisachar, Zavulun, Yosef, Binyamin, spelled full, Binyamin, oh, spelled full, for so was written in the place of his birth, in Genesis. And that totals 25 letters on each stone. There you go. So they had a, so clearly, Faith, to your question, to your point, point well taken, they had to engrave that very, 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 very small. Oh, not, we, when we did our, the jewelry, Donna, when we did the jewelry, we did the Choshen, the Choshen theme, and then if I'm not mistaken, we did a black leather cord, like a black corded necklace with a little bit of a, like a copper or bronze, um, uh, pendant. So right. So that was. So the idea was to encapsulate not only the stones, but the look. Right. The whole look. And but so then we the, wrote we wrote like yeah. Hebrew letters, so Hebrew words. Right. So black cord, and then the shape of the pendant was to mirror the shape of the Hoshan breastplate, without the stones. Right. But to bring in the concept of engraving you know, the tribe's names on the, on the Hoshan stone, on the two Ephod stones, we, we used Hebrew calligraphy with a black pen to write L'chai, L'chai. L'chai, right, right, to write, yeah, to write life. But that, so my point is that that we wrote a little larger. To get right. 25 letters, six tribes on each stone, they would have to use a very small etching tool, whatever they used back then, to do it, which is why the Torah says, this is like an engraver of gems, right? You should, that it's, it's going to require some, uh, some knowledge, some know-how with this um, to make this happen. When you look at the Yemenite jewelry, uh, which has actually made from wires mm. in those super, uh, that's, some of that's really Chinese stuff. I don't know if I'm familiar with that, but it sounds interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. All right, let's go second reading. We have a, we'll go for another few minutes. Let's see where we get to the second reading. So remember, this, this Torah portion last week was about kind of like the, the, 
the like furnishings and you know the the vessels and that. This week is about more about the other stuff, like the the garments and the clothing and the accessories. So Exodus chapter twenty-eight, verse thirteen: You shall make settings of gold, settings of gold, and two chains of pure gold. You will make them attached to the edges, after the manner of cables. And you will place the cable chains upon the settings. In case you're wondering what in the world we're talking about. Cable chains, what? I thought we cut the cord. So in case you're wondering what the cables are, so it's this right here. It's how you mount the breastplate to the aphod. You see that? You mount it with chains. I don't know if you could see it. From, from the stones, there's, there's chains. One, two, three, four. That's how you mount that. It's a floating, the breastplate is floating in that, in that area. Um, Let's continue back inside. I have a question. Yeah. <coughs> Why wasn't this just something spoken to Moses which didn't need to go in the Torah? Good question. For him to give it to the workmen, whatever. And then we'll find out later, yeah. right? Good. But why was it important? Mark is asking, Mark is asking, yeah. can I ask it a little bit more like raw for a second? Mark is saying, do we need to know all these details? You kidding me? It's so detailed. Like, are we? Like, do we need to do this? Let God tell Moses. Let Moses tell the people. Let it be built, and let's read about. Oh, they built this thing, and it was really beautiful. Do we need all the details? So the answer. So very, very good question. I, it's a great question. What comes to mind? I don't know if this is the answer, but what comes to mind as a potential thought is. And even though we said before, we're not repli- We're not. We don't have this that we replicate this today. That's not what we're meant to do. But spiritually, spiritually, we can replicate these things. And there are spiritual lessons in each of these items because when we think about building a space for God, what we're saying is that our own spaces for God, our own kind of personal space for God, requires also all of these items in some way. Requires us to remember where we came from, to remember who we represent, to remember that we're always represented before God. These are all things that we can live with. So all of these details have permanent or timeless messages for spiritual messages for us embedded in the in the details that's my answer i don't know if that's the answer but that's my answer um well two chains of pure gold by the way this also has an insight the 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 the, the verse 14 two chains of pure gold you should make attached to the edges that's some commentators say that alludes to the fact that when we go to work yeah when we when we because gold is like money is it's it's like it's wealth that it should be always attached to the edges. It should always be anchored in um, holiness, anchored in ethics, anchored in honesty. That it shouldn't be just like the pursuit of gold, i.e. money, shouldn't take us into you know, places that are not consistent with our values. The, 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 the gold chains came out of the holy garments. They were attached to the holy garments, which means that the pursuit of wealth should be done always in a way that is for lack of a better term, kosher. Okay, let's continue. The choshen, the breastplate. All right, now we're, getting, now we're getting to the gems. You shall make a choshen, the breastplate of judgment. It's called the choshen mishpat, the uh, choshen of judgment. Oh, the judgment is what we said before. When the, when the high priest has a question, that's when it lights up. Right, so choshen of judgment, the work of a master weaver. Once again, a, it requires a lot of expertise to make this. You shall make it like the work of the aphod. In other words, similar fabric. Similar materials, gold, blue, purple, and crimson wool, and twisted fine linen, you shall make it. So the the breastplate was fabric-based with gold and gemstone settings. But just to be very clear, the base wasn't, it wasn't solid metal. It was actually made out of, like, material. It shall be square, and it shall be doubled. In other words, when it's closed, it should make a square, but if you opened it, obviously it would be double the size or double the length or whatever it is, however it opened. It's length, one span, and it's width, one span. And you shall fold into it. Sorry, not fold. You shall fill into it stone fillings, four rows of stones. I should probably clarify, four rows of three stones. I'm not trying to add a word to the toe, I'm just for you and I. Four rows of three stones. I'll show you the picture in a second. One row, and now the Torah details. Talk about 
details. Torah details the exact stones in their position on each row. One row, in other words, row number one, you got Odem stone, Pitida stone, and Bareket. Thus shall be one, thus shall the one row be. The second row, Nofech, Sapir, that's got to be sapphire, and Yahalom. These are all the stones. We're now, these are not just random words. These are the stones uh, that were used for the, for the breastplate. The third row, Leshem, Shavo, and Achlama. The fourth row should have Tarshish, Shoham, and Yashfeh. Or Yashfeh. They shall be set in gold in their fillings. So again, it was very interesting. This breastplate was made of like woven fabric doubled over with gold settings filled with gemstones. Okay, they must have had to weave that material very tight so that it wouldn't uh, be too wavy. Let's continue. And the stones shall be for the names of the, stone, of the sons of Israel. Twelve. Twelve stones, twelve tribes corresponding to their names, similar to the engravings of a seal. Everyone according to his name shall they be for the twelve tribes. And this is a very unique way of saying, essentially, engrave one tribe, tribal name per stone. Right? Engrave it. Each one according to his name shall they be. That means each stone has one tribal name for the twelve tribes. So the, tr so the yeah. stones appeared in two places then. Exactly. One they on were, the apron and then one on the breastplate. Exactly, 100%. The 12 names of the 12 tribes appeared on the two stones on the, on the eight foot on the, on the apron on the shoulder, by the shoulder straps, one, two, six and six. And then individually, each tribal name appeared on one of the 12 stones on that breastplate. They were, and they were in proximity to each other. So one, one signifies kind of a communal joining, six and six. The other one more individualized, but also within the same, within the same uh, general area, within the same item. Um, you shall make, verse 22, you shall make for the Choshen chains at the edges of cable work of pure gold. You shall make for the Choshen two golden rings and you shall place the two golden rings at the two ends, on the two ends of the Choshen. I, you, we're going to read this and then I'm going to show you a picture and it's all going to make sense. And you shall place the two golden cables on the two rings at the ends of the Choshen. At the ends of the two cables, you shall place upon the two settings. Sorry, and the two ends of the two cables, you shall place upon the two settings. And these you shall place upon the shoulder straps of the A-foot on its front part. Okay, at this point, I'm going to just show you the picture. Picture is here. Look at the upper edge, and I, it's not easy for me to point, but look at the upper edge of that Choshen. Um, uh, Can you see that there are circles there are um there's a yeah yeah and then and then attached to that is the chain that then attaches to the shoulder straps to where the stones are so you have from the shoulder straps you have the two stones at the edges then you have a, a gold chain that attaches to the circle to that loop or hook not hook to that uh the ring that's to the top the top two edges of that uh, the breastplate so it's all it's all connected the point is it's all connected together Look, very simply, the breastplate had a float, had a float on the chest of the, of the high priest. How did it float? You had gold chains on the top holding it, you had gold chains on the bottom holding it to the, to the other, to the, to, the, to the apron itself part. What was, <clears throat> what is Urim Vitumim? Urim Vitumim is another name for the breastplate. Because it shows if you look on page 387, uh, oh. yeah, it shows a fold. This is fold for Urim Vitumim. Oh, I'm sorry. The Urim Vitumim was a... Okay, the Urim Vitumim is also a, another name for the breastplate, but specifically, the Urim Vitumim is a reference to the... I don't know if it was a paper, but the special thing, the insert that was placed inside that fold. Remember we said that it was supposed to be made like a fold? Yeah. Inside was slipped a piece of parchment or whatever it is with God's name on it or whatever. Oh, that kind of, that's what that, was. that powered oh. the breastplate. So, so that, went inside. that went inside the that fold. The fold was for. Yeah, that was like the battery pack or the divine energy that, that powered this thing. Um, the Choshen, oh this is a good picture actually. 
Here's from this Chumash. There you go. You see it? It's like kind of folded. There. No, it's fine. I mean, I'm holding it close enough. You see the two rings at the top? Okay. It shows the fold. It shows the fold. Yeah. Avnei Shoham, Okay. Let's, uh, let's jump back inside. Let's see how much we have and we may... So God's name went... When... God's name... Something went on that... Went on that... Uh, went, went, went inside. Something was slipped inside. The full, the, full, the full God's name, yeah. Maybe. Maybe even more than that. Because no, okay. God has a 72 letter name also. We have to look that up to see exactly what went inside. Okay, two golden rings, put them two hands. Okay, sure, we did that. Okay, you should make two. Well, let's, let's do it again from 26. You should make two golden rings. You shall place them on the two ends of the choshen, on its edge that is toward the inner side of the aphod. That's at the bottom. You shall make two golden rings and place them on the two shoulder straps of the aphod from below toward its front, adjacent to its seam above the band of the aphod. And they shall fasten by the choshen by, by its rings to the rings of the aphod with a blue cord. That, I believe, is toward the bottom. So that it may be upon the band of the aphod, and the choshen will not move off the aphod. Thus shall Aaron carry the names. Okay, so fine. So now we, all these verses, and we can pick this up tomorrow and get more detail with Rashi's in it. But bottom line is, all of these rings and cords and chains were what held the choshen, that breastplate, in place, so that it wasn't jostling around. When the high priest walked, it wasn't like, you know, swinging around and like bumping into people. It was just, it was tight. It was, it was held in place. Thus, as the Torah concludes this little conversation, thus shall Aaron carry the names of the sons of Israel in the choshen of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy. So their names are literally on his heart as he enters the holy chamber as a remembrance before the Lord at all times. Like we said before, you shall, regarding the shoulder straps, the same shoe with regard to the breastplate. You shall place the Urim and the Tumim into the choshen of judgment. So that they will be over Aaron's heart when he comes before the Lord, and Aaron will carry the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord at all times. So what is the Urim and the Tumim? Let's see Rashi. Yeah, let's see Rashi. Rashi will, will give us a little bit of, of insight. This refers to the inscription of the explicit name. That means God's real name, which Moses would place within the folds of the Choshen, through which it would light up its words and perfect its words. Urim v'tumim. Urim is like mayor, is light, and tumim is like tamim, it means perfection. So urim and tumim means light and perfection. What gave this breastplate its light and perfection? The inner inscription of God's name that was put inside the folds of the breastplate. I've got a note on this. One second, let me just see what else we have here. Um, okay, in the second temple, there was, no, there, there was a choshen, but that name was not inside it. The second temple era, they didn't have the name. They didn't have the name of God inside it. Because of that name, it was called judgment, and he showed quiet. So it didn't work, basically. In the second temple era, it didn't light up anymore. Battery ran out. Battery, yeah, no battery. Yeah. No, uh, no divine name. No div no. Rabbi, yeah. Rabbi, if, if it was used for that purpose for divination, like important questions, like I just read that maybe should Israel go to war, but it was only allowed to go in one day a year on Yom Kippur, then they waited the whole year to find the No, he wore that all the time, the high priest oh. did. He only went into the Holy of Holies. He only walked into the chamber where the ark was once a year. But he was always wearing that breastplate whenever he was, you know, every day he wore that breastplate. So he could, I, I don't know the protocol, but theoretically he could conjure that up, you know, on, uh, whenever necessary, shall we say. Um, yeah, okay. So that's, uh, that's that. What was it written on? I'm assuming a piece of parchment. They didn't have paper then. I don't think they had paper. Papyrus, maybe? Parchment? It's God's name. But it says Shema Mephurish, which is God's explicit name, which I'm assuming is at the very least the four-letter name of God, the one that we don't pronounce, the way it's written, or maybe even one of the longer names of God that are really, like, only known to very few, whatever. Maybe that's what it was. Does it have it in what page is it again? Uh, page 393. 393, okay. And with this, we'll, yeah. we'll close it out. What, what, which one? No, one and no, no three talk about this one. You know, the very bottom. Oh, a divine name. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so I was, so I was right over here. Um, this is a divine name which is generally forbidden to be uttered. Some maintain that it was not the Tetragrammaton, but the 42-letter name. According to others, it was the 72-letter name. Okay. Yes, yeah, so I, I was correct. So some say, basically three opinions. Some say it was the four-letter name of God, the one that we visualize in our prayer books, in the Chumash, whatever, in the Torah, but we don't pronounce it. 
Some say it was not the four-letter name. It was an even higher name, the 42-letter name of God. Some say it was the 72-letter name of God. And which other one? Look at three. But no three. Urim lights perfection. Yeah. It would illuminate, right? And predictions always came. So the, the, and this name of God powered the breastplate to light up and to give the right answers, which would also be so kind of predict, predictive text. Says it's predictions would, predictions always, would always come true. It was always perfectly correct. Perfectly correct. Yeah. Perfectly correct. Yeah. Okay? All right, that's it. That, that takes us to the end of today. Um, I do, there's a lot of stuff that I wanted to mention. There was a general point that I wanted to say at the beginning that I said we'll speak about later, which we don't have time today. So tomorrow I'll mention the general point. So remind me at the beginning, we'll talk about the general point. But in, um, in kind of conclusion and the, kind of the inspiration, the takeaway for me at least is this idea of always remembering that we are rep being represented before Hashem. Well, I guess it works both ways, that we are representing others, right? That we always, as we're, all of us are leaders, so we all are not just private citizens, private individuals, but we also you know, are responsible for others, that's number one. And number two, that we are cherished. And when we know that we're loved, when we know how special, how represented we are, so then maybe it'll, you know, we'll think twice before doing something that doesn't befit that type of representation. If I know that I'm a prince or a princess, so hopefully I'll act in a, in a, in a way befitting those titles. All right, it's great to see you all. Thanks for joining me today for DPP as we kick off a new Torah portion, Titzave. Um, this week, fairly standard week with JLI. Next week, is uh, we got some stuff coming up. We also have some other exciting surprises that will be launched in the next few days. So stay tuned, as always, for the fun. All right. See you guys. Take care. Bye, Donna. Thank you, Bye, Sarah. Bye. Pleasure. Bye, Faye. We'll see you guys. Take care. It's very coincidental.